0: You know, the problem with people who work in the technical field, at least the people in the engineering and design side, we often don't think of ourselves as workers. Mm-hmm. It is something that the the label is something diverse from our conception of what we do. I think oftentimes uh, these companies are private companies and often do not sort of sneak away from the uh, laws of the land to allow workers to self-organize or be part of unions that are exist in the country as a whole. So yeah it's it's a tough task but I'm glad people are at least starting the conversations.
1: This is Purple Code, a podcast with intersectional feminist perspectives about digitalized
2: societies. My name is Lena. And I'm Janka. And I'm Sana. And this is our fifth episode. So we're here in this very nice building at Udeka. We're recording the second episode here, although it's our fifth episode. But uh, it's a a really, really nice um, architecture in a nice uh, building, so to say. Um, And... This weekend, there was this, uh, this open uh, door exhibition happening at Udeka, actually. And a friend went here, uh, came here, and she said, isn't it so great to have these possibilities at a, at a university to do so much? I mean, just the archetype, uh, you know, sort of design of this building and just the music playing and the white walls. It's, it's just so nice to be sitting here and recording this, uh, this session. And we have a very interesting guest today, um, Roxana. And uh, she is a queer software developer, and uh, it's a very interesting story how we met. Actually, it was it was at my birthday party. Very delayed birthday parties. I feel like Berlin is is you know is the place where birthday parties happen, and you meet interesting people. I've met the most interesting people, my friends, at birthday parties, and they, this is where we met. And you got your very nice sound system, and we played music the whole night in Hasenheider and danced under the open sky, which was which was really nice. Nice. And we started talking about what we do and your work really interested me and I so I invited you here. Would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Yes. Hi, I'm uh, Rukhsana. My pronouns are Sheher. I'm a queer uh, software developer who recently moved to Berlin a couple of months back. But I have been working in the field of software development for around five years now. So I have uh, worked in... Are different countries but uh, i am starting my life in berlin in a couple of months and i'm really happy to start it with a podcast with these lovely women today on a very hot day in berlin
2: Oh, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, I think it's it's the first time that we've actually had someone who is involved in the sort of design and development side of technology. And before we've had many experts who talk about um, you know the experience of technology in terms of the activism side, the academic side, and studying and working with it. But you're involved in the shaping of it. Um, yeah. How did you actually? How did you actually become a software developer? Uh I would say it's
0: uh, more by circumstance of the place I was born in, Uh, it's about more, uh, it is often seen as a uh, career that, gives you easy access and a comfortable access to livelihood. So oftentimes education is a means to achieve livelihood more than anything in the place I was born. So, uh, yeah, so that's how, uh, because it was uh, also come from a family where uh, uh, livelihood was quite uh, tenuous, like uh, uh, people had to struggle a lot to get, uh, you know, uh, decent food, education, and shelter. So this became the primary objective of education. So, and a lot of people in those uh, in the places and surroundings I'm from have uh, have sought access to this uh, field in order to you know get a comfortable livelihood. So that's how I got into it. Uh, Yes, and, and then I got into university and I was studying that uh, for a bit, yeah. And it was actually uh, interesting because it was a, a four-year course on uh, a Bachelor of Technology in Computer Science. I'm from uh, uh, South Asia and. Uh, uh, there are obviously a lot of people from that region within the technology field but uh, the particularity of identities i occupy is a bit rare and it went also sort of give away who i am <laughs> because of that so i think i would just rather say south asia <laughs> at this moment thank you
2: mm-hmm. it's that's that's interesting i mean most of the most of the software developers and engineers that i've met from south asia are generally men mm-hmm. cis men mm-hmm. and also coming from upper caste and class backgrounds mm-hmm. how do you how do you see working in that space
0: yeah luckily uh, most of my employment has been outside uh, south asia so i never had a job in south asia so i immediately left uh, where i was studying after my university for my first job in a different country uh, so i fortunately don't have so much experience working with uh, those particular groups of people but uh, yeah those are people you often uh, see in your daily social li- social and political life as someone who is from you know the oppressor opp- oppressive backgrounds like people who have always been you know occupying way too much power within the socio-political circles and that just power is sort of carried over and replicated within the space of employment and education as well. This often gets lost when you're talking outside South Asia because uh, particularly of their background or the place they occupy in the hierarchy of power is often lost when migration happens. So I think it's always important to question where like what kind of circumstances that led a person in that role or whatever.
1: And the places where you worked later then, did class or your nationality um, have importance? Uh,
0: I think so. One thing about technology is like it's severely dominated by men. I would have to say even women of the whatever women from backgrounds that are considered like higher higher in the hierarchy say by class race or whatever even those women have a, a very limited sort of uh, occupancy within this genre of employment in software engineering so that's something that is I think uh, specific to outside these areas, I would say, for example, to just to name a country from South Asian India, there are quite a few uh, women who work in software engineering. Not as much as men, but I, I think outside. These areas, the women working are very, very few. So I would say it was more dominated by men. And obviously, when it's men, it's also men with resources or men with certain kind of uh, positionality of power. So who used to? So it's a very narrow group of people who sort of get to sort of occupy places of power in such situations.
3: Yeah, that's interesting because we are talking a lot about uh, how to counter those uh, power asymmetries within uh, or that you are establishing by developing uh, digital technologies and one approach is to have more diverse groups. Of people that are designing those technologies, and it's—I uh, would like to know more about how you managed to to enter even, like in a, a different places. You worked as a software engineer. How how you managed to to enter this? I don't know to get these jobs, uh, let's say, because it's so important to have also yeah, absolutely. I
0: would say it's a sheer stroke of luck. I would I would not claim any superior intelligence or superior sort of. Any in any sense of the word, it was just a stroke of luck. I think there's a poem I always remember by uh, Bertolt Brecht, who wrote about reflecting on the uh, years during Nazi or before Nazi. Really talks about how it is only by chance that I'm not dead. Like it is only by chance that I'm still alive. It's, there is nothing brave or specific about my personality that made me survive. I think survival usually is a matter of chance. Uh, For me, it was truly a matter of chance and circumstance, but I would obviously not uh, discount the efforts that my parents are first generation uh, uh, people who who got access to education and come from uh, oppressed backgrounds of from the place of the birth. Uh, so they put a lot of emphasis and effort into helping us access the kinds of education and support uh, we needed to sort of be able to enter or get access to institutions that later helped me in uh, gaining employment. And definitely, there is that element that, that takes a lot more effort and a lot more sort of. Time and energy when you are when you are from social positions that are not do not have easy access to such things that you do not have anyone in your circle like you the people you grew up with or like people who sell tickets in uh, the movie theaters people who repair uh, uh, who weld like doors who make doors who sweep the floors so mm. the people you grew up with are people who have never seen the insights of such establishments so you're truly figuring it out all by yourself, there's no one you can turn to so I don't want to discount the amount of effort I or my people who helped me have put in but I also want to say that there is a lot of chance involved in even getting access to it, anything would have gone wrong and it's just a matter of chance that I was the one who could do that and there could have been very easily someone else So all in all, I want to say I'm not a very smart person. I just, (laughs) it just happened that I somehow sneaked in through the cracks. So, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, when we speak about diversity, um, I mean, diversity is like the the word of of this age that we're living in. What does diversity mean? Is Is there even a possibility to try to influence the design and shaping of technology from inside? Uh,
0: Personally, I sort of hold a bit of a pessimistic view on it. I think it is uh, to clarify pessimistic view in terms of changing in isolation. To change something from inside in isolation, I think is not possible or not possible to an extent it would make a significant impact for uh, the things you're trying to change i think anything you're trying to change from the inside has to be firmly coupled with uh, struggles from the outside like outside to de step like no matter who you put in charge if the system you have to serve still requires you to do a certain kind of task or it requires you to perform it in a certain way it does not matter to a large extent to who is doing that it might be me it might be someone else as long as you're expected to as long as we don't change the thing we are expected to do which is dictated often by not just one person by a system as long as you don't change the system which dictates you what things you're allowed to do does not, for me, I think it does not matter who's doing that thing it would mm. be nice <laughs> I mean, I don't know if people take comfort from who is screwing you over but I do not <laughs> mm. <laughs> so
3: I, yeah I I can understand this and I'm, I'm also struggling between seeing it as pessimistic as you put it right now because in design we have a lot of discussions about the affordances Right. And then on the other hand, I'm very, I think just that you can't put a responsibility on the shoulders of individuals, but you have to ask the systemic questions. And there it gets really complicated, but still people have to have the feeling that they could change also something. So you have to find the, the way to balance uh, uh, both. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, this is not to uh, discount the enormous efforts that people put from being inside hostile uh, uh, institutes or hostile settings, still trying to make their voice heard through whatever little means they have. It is amazing and really commendable the sort of effort it takes to mobilize people within structures that have always been resistant to it or that have always erased those histories of mobilization within those settings. It is really truly amazing but uh, my point was that you also have to do it in tandem with something bigger, I think. Something bigger that would destabilize or uproot the structures that are making you put so much effort to even do a little bit of mobilization. That should not be normal.
2: What are these uh, positive mobilizations that you were talking about? You uh, have some examples? Yeah, of
0: course. I You can see, in like especially in the U.S. context, there have been a lot of... Uh, moves towards unionization with you, you, uh, most towards unionization within tech workers you can see like within the google uh, setting you have alphabet workers union you have uh, some other companies technical workers unionizing you know the problem with people who work in the technical field, at least the people in the engineering and design side, we often don't think of ourselves as workers. Mm. That is something that the the label is something diverse from our conception of what we do because oftentimes we are in a very relative places of comfort because the sort of salary that efforts you the sort of life whatever there's a certain level of comfort that uh, your employment efforts you that makes you sort of disengage from your larger reality of being someone who is selling your labor to survive. So uh, I think it is important to have that consciousness. It, it is important to bring about that realization that your position as whatever person, engineer, could be changed. In a day, it's not something that's really in your hand. You're not as mm-hmm. in charge as you might be. A lot mm. to think within the borders of your computer screen so i think it's important to have this sort of consciousness well, probably wrong word but a, a class consciousness mm-hmm. within the laboring forces of the tech field and there are a lot of positive developments within the u.s i think oftentimes uh these companies are private companies and often do not sort of sneak away from the uh, laws of the land to allow workers to self-organize or be part of unions that are exist in the country as a whole so yeah it's it's a tough task but i'm glad people are at least starting the conversations Yeah.
1: And you have? Have you always had class consciousness?
0: Oh uh, yeah, uh, because my father was a communist, so <laughs> we are uh, sort of forced <laughs> to <about> have it <laughs> through our dinner conversations. So basically, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's something uh, we were taught to think about quite early from in my upbringing. So I do think of myself as. A tech worker, I think everyone should. Uh, it's important for you to keep yourself, be part of the work, larger working class and larger struggles, for sure. Yeah.
2: Did you ever try to have this conversation around class consciousness in with your colleagues?
0: Unfortunately, no, because I am relatively new and I'm very low in the sort of totem pole of a hierarchy of power. And it is very, so to say I'm very disposable uh, in that sense. So for me, uh, this particular employment is of higher importance because uh, I'm also an immigrant. So I, I, in my home country, I'm not safe, mm. particularly because of different identities I have. So it is not something I am very at ease to resort by myself, not part of a community of people. It is not a conversation that I can start by myself mm-hmm. or in a very, like, a solo effort. I think it will be uh, very detrimental to my safety in general, both my employment safety and a lot of my actual personal safety hinges on me having a stable employment so it's not something I've done but as I've said I do unfortunately have uh, because of the nature of the people who work in the tech field I have I think it takes a lot of effort to sort of really make them conscious because as I've said most of them are in the western context white men or some uh, other sort of powerful men working in this even though they are you know workers but still they occupy a lot of powers in a lot of grounds so it's, it feels like a humongous task to truly make them empower like uh, truly thinking workers so it is something i think cannot be done by an individual mm-hmm. or not effectively this has to be a collective force and yeah so and um, i am just waiting <laughs> i guess
2: for the revolution to happen
0: we <laughs> <laughs> can put that way <laughs> but
2: but it's also very interesting while listening to you i'm also thinking this does working in technology also offer a safe space for these different identities for being a queer person for being a migrant uh for not knowing the language for example here
0: absolutely i'm truly grateful for the safety my employment provides me. Without that, I would not have had the privilege to move out of countries that are unsafe for me or move out of situations that are toxic for me. I think there is a certain sort of safety that relatively well-paid employment offers you and an employment that can be uh, flexible and mobile, like the technical field offers you a certain sort of mobility so i think it's definitely offers a relative safe space for many people who ever manage to work but also to stress not a lot of people work mm. <laughs> like uh, it is mostly occupied by powerful men so whoever gets in definitely but also take into account that you have to work in a setting that is hostile to you or hostile to your needs Uh, is that
1: the situation now
0: i think for me i'm though i would not like to comment on the current situation for me but in my previous companies that was the case for me yeah i think there are not a lot of people but they're slowly increasing they're like Diversity initiatives that are happening across companies because you know everyone is noticing the (laughs) stark sort of uh, imbalance Mm. of people who work from there. So, there have been diversity initiatives, people are increasing, and uh, for those individual people, it does offer a respite in a safe space the employment. But as I said, uh, it has it is at the end of the day just individual respite, it does not in my opinion, do anything for the collective as much as we would like to because there is no structure or there is no organisational support that they have.
2: Mm
3: But would you say that it is changing right now? I mean, what are your observations during the last years? Because, I mean, you mentioned my daughter, Elena, before. She is, like, uh, very aware of feministic, of intersectional questions, of uh, sustainability, ecological sustainability questions. And and all her friends and a lot of uh, new and young students that are super aware of these issues. And I think they will start formulating different expectations to society to, to our systems and also to companies i would hope
0: yeah i think definitely uh, all the few positive changes that i've mentioned before are happening because more and more people who have never been working in such situations have been entering such fields i think that is the reason for pushing that is coming from inside Uh, or uh, sort of a simmering conflicts within such environments to make it more inclusive, make it more diverse. So it's only happening because more and more different kinds of people are entering such establishments. But uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a slow process. Uh, Eventually, I hope they will form like a... Collectives that they have like support on they're not always working, they're not always doing this stuff from a place of precarity, from a place of you know uh, that you know this would be the end of whatever their journey there. Mm. So I think it's important to provide avenues for resistance which are not from places of precarity. I think that would be more fruitful.
1: Mm -hmm. And are you somehow connected to other queer workers uh, somewhere? I'm asking also because parts of the discrimination I suffered throughout my um, years of employment were things I could only recognize and start to deal with in exchange with other women for example of professional women or mm-hmm. professional mothers because mm-hmm. at the very beginning you don't know is it personal is it me is it my fault mm-hmm. and then you need a few years to understand what is systemic and what are like the classic mechanisms that you be- that belittle you and um, so yeah, do you that- have
0: community? Yeah, there are uh, sort of self-organized groups of people uh, among queer communities. Uh, within uh, various companies and we do seek support in each other. We talk about things, but also important to note that they're self-organized. They don't really hold power or say. Like they can offer you support in terms of like giving you a lending year or offering you to resources or people you can contact when you have some issues. But it is still people doing it out of their own time, out of their in addition to the labor or work they put in. So it's all very voluntary basis. Uh, So there are this self-organized collectives for different sort of identities for women, for queer people, for people of color. So there are different sort of these groupings, all of self-organized on your own time. So impact is little, but it's still important to have them. Otherwise, you just don't have any sort of voice or any sort of even recognition of your own positionality or why you're, like, there will always be someone said, oh, I face the same thing in some other company. This is how I dealt with it. So there's sort of, I would, I would not say whisper networks, but a sort of a network of knowledge, a network of coping mechanisms that is being created.
1: I was wondering whether the discrimination that you suffer as a queer person is different or very similar to the discrimination that you can suffer as a woman, for example, because it's what I know. Yeah, Um, uh,
0: so the, uh, the thing is like people you work with are often from very different social realities. So these are people who probably do not know a lot of queer people in their lives, do not have or have actually interacted with them on a personal basis or on a professional basis. So People are sort of figuring it out. (laughs) And, you know, how do you, like, even from their perspective, like, how do you handle this new presence that is making you a bit, you know, hesitant? Like, you're not as comfortable as in like you, like if you're working with someone like you, like you would just be like, okay, this is just a person like me in a different mm. skin or in a, in a looking different. So, but if you're working with people who you had for whatever reasons do not have in your social circles or professional circles, so it's a new experience for you. So it's just figuring it out what to do. <laughs> And it also depends on the person. If the person is willing to sort of put the effort to sort of make that process more organic, more comfortable, or it can be a person or that person will adapt to our working methods. We don't need to change anything. So it's also very personal. And obviously, organizationally, there will be some, you know, videos or sessions or courses you do on how to deal with diversity in your workplace, how do you be more uh, sensitive, how do you be more whatever to people but you know it is a very slow social process because Your circles outside don't reflect sometimes that the diversity you might have at work. So this is all very connected. So you cannot have a better workplace without having a better society outside. Mm. So if your society Mm. is sort of mired in problems or mired in this sort of inequalities, you cannot come and expect a very radically different workplace. It is very connected, I think. You... If you do not have anyone queer in your life outside, you'll always have a discomfort dealing with queer people in your work because it's a new sort of...
1: Yeah, or maybe you you meet somebody at work and then you go back to your life outside work and you realize that mm. there are more different people than you would see before.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure.
2: But I was also just wondering in terms of your workplace, um, do you happen to work in teams or do you prefer working by yourself at home?
0: I work from home. So I do work in teams. I do work with some very kind people. So it really depends on what kind of people they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, like, uh, if there are people who are, you know, kind and nice or whatever, willing to just bear with discomfort uh, or conflict, and then you'll have a good experience. Or if there are people who are not that way, you'll have. So it's a matter of just a chance, Mm -hmm. (laughs) again. So if to have a good team is truly a matter of chance because there is nothing... Organizationally or, I mean there is some organizational support or whatever but still I don't think it's as enough usually for it is also a personal endeavor to you know truly put the effort to create a safe workplace for everyone. Hmm.
1: And how human are the working conditions otherwise? Because sometimes you read that in software production, you have a lot of
0: pressure. Absolutely. Uh, There are many working places that are truly have terrible working conditions, like long hours and just an expectation to just put it before everything else. But uh, fortunately, my workplace is not like that. My workplace is pretty flexible and pretty in that way, not too not extremely demanding to like just sacrifice yourself at the altar of labor uh, that is not to say that all places are like this it is just you know a circumstance of team circumstance of kind of work you do within the same organization Yeah, like you often hear a lot about, especially for gaming developers, that when during releases or whatever, they have to put in so much effort, so much things. So there are like certain fields that are more prone to that sort of uh, exploitation, and certain fields and certain places of employment that are less so. But again, there's nothing stopping anyone from doing it, so Mm -hmm. that is a problem. Like if you do not feel do not face consequences for doing so, you can change in a week. <laughs> and that's not really something you can, again, because you don't have an organizational support, you would just like, okay, I have to deal with it or just go out. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: So do you like your job? Because at the very beginning, you talked so much about how necessary it was to study computer science. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. I like my job. Yeah? I have a uh, pretty pretty decent place of employment, pretty decent colleagues. And I think I've been fortunate enough to working there for a couple of years. So I think uh, so far it's been nice.
3: <laughs> I would like to come back to <clears throat> your multiple identities as mm. you named it, um, especially the poetic ones. So you mentioned that you are also writing poems. Is it more like an equal effort as your developing job or how how would you, how how do they go together?
0: So uh, my poetry has always been at odds with my job, not job, with my study because of the way I studied because I wanted to quit computer science at some point, Mm -hmm. I wanted to study literature and uh, my father was like, "Well, what are you gonna <laughs> uh, make money by?" So I'm like, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so now you, <laughs> I was just like, read poems on the street, and people will give me money. <laughs> like, That's a dream, huh? yeah. Like pay money for a poem, and I'll just write a poem and read it for them. <laughs> so. uh In that case, uh, there was always a bit of resentment within me, so I I purposefully never wrote poems about my studies or about my work, work. Like, I know you can do a lot of cool creative things about bringing your programming stuff into your poetry, but I never did it because one was at the expense of other for me, so... I uh, personally poetry is a different journey for me. It has a whole lot of trajectories, and the way I see it has evolved over the years. And uh, now I just write it when I when I can't help it. When mm-hmm. if I don't write it, I would not survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it mm-hmm. is a matter of it is almost like I have to write it. Otherwise, I cannot. Breathe anymore, <laughs> like so,
2: a like a mechanism of resilience. It makes you resilient.
0: Yeah, it it, uh, it is not just resilience. I think there is always uh, there is always sometimes a beauty that is brewing in your head. Sometimes requires a sort of expression. For me, when there is something really beautiful or something really necessary or important or resilient, that needs that that begs for an expression in the form of language, then I would write a poem. Because I have have grown to see poetry beyond language. For Mm -hmm. me, poetry has sort of transcended language. So I often feel like I carry poetry with me by just walking the streets, by just observing beautiful things, by having lovely conversations. So I think even those things are poetic for me. For me, poetry does not need to be in language or on a paper or whatever reason. So But there are some times that it requires that for me. So only those times I write it. There was a time I used to write everything in a poem, but now I'm more uh, more picky about what I write about, about when I write about it. So I think it is nice to have that freedom to choose when to creatively express, uh, because if I was doing it for a job or for an employment, I do not think I would have the same kind of freedom. I would have to write, even if you feel like writing or if you think it should be written at all. So, but you have to write because if that's how you survive. So it's again, if when you put anything in the system of selling it, if you're selling your poetry, if you're selling your labor, it will be sort of, you will have a different relationship with it than when you're not selling it. You're just, you're just uh, relating with it on a less oppressive uh, framework. When you put anything in a framework of oppression or oppressive framework it will obviously take a different nature in my opinion so for me i have been thankful that my poetry has escaped that framework and i can get to choose when i when i express and how i express
3: it's so interesting what you're saying because it's a huge discussion and i'm often talking with uh, colleagues of mine on those when you're looking at all creative expression like art in general and it's um it's really an invisible border there and but it's also said that it's there because then it also means that you have to have this freedom of not thinking in, let's say, selling logics. Uh, it doesn't have to be money. It can be an audience. It can be whatever. In order to really feel the freedom of creativity. And it, this is a catch-22 for me, I think. And I, I really liked what you said, how you deal with this for yourself so that you can really frame it and understand it and, and live it as a as a form of survival, actually. Yeah, for yourself. But then still the question pops up, that is it then public or do you Uh, make it public? Yes,
0: I have been published before. Uh, My poetry has been published in various online journals and anthologies. And I also usually used to publish it online quite frequently. But now I do it now and then. For me, uh, I don't really go after trying to publish it. Uh, Oftentimes the things that have published also when people have asked me to submit it or people have requested me to send mm-hmm. it to them that's when it's usually published i usually don't try to go after i it is not something i seek for me poetry is a purely personal endeavor it is does not need to does not need to be appreciated or read by anyone it is just purely something and do it for me so in that sense I am a very sort of privileged poet Mm, (laughs) because mm. I know that a lot of people a lot of especially upcoming poets struggle trying to get their work out especially when they're not from circles that are just like where you're grandfather is a poet your father is a poet so you're just Mm -hmm. not within this circles of cultural elites and cultural elitism you sort of often do not have access to this mode of getting your work out there especially it's important for poets to even improve upon their craft or improve upon like it is often necessary that your poetry is read for you to improve your expression because you know oftentimes there are things that you don't see in your own poems that are other people bring it to you so poem is half finished when you write it when you finish writing it it's only fully finished when people read it and put their meaning into it yeah it's
3: that dynamic between. yeah it's a
0: it's a a live dynamic it's a it's a conversation between the language and the reader so I think that also might be a reason I might not have improved as much as a poet as I would have. I mean, I I hate (laughs) putting those words, but it is not something I have done because I know the sort of uh, restrictions that I would have to face with. And I'm just like... I don't want to do it. It doesn't matter if my trajectory as a poet is changed because of my reluctance to approach traditional publishing mechanisms. Okay. So it's fine. I will just take my own trajectory. It does not need to fit into others. So, But it's a choice that I can make because I don't depend on it for my living. But it's not a choice that is available to everyone.
3: And may I add one comment? I think writing poetry and developing codes Mm. (laughs) is very much related to each other. So it's not that it's two separate dimensions or Mm -hmm. words Mm -hmm. that you have to bring together, but they are so much related.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, there was... I often see code as poetry for computers. You're just writing it in a language that only computers can read. Even you cannot appreciate the poetry of it, but a computer can. So that is true that this both can be very related. It is just in the trajectory of my life, I had to separate them or they were often in conflict with each other. So I do not mix them, but it is truly a great, genre of I can truly imagine so many poems I can write But just don't write it.
3: (laughs) By the way, in Germany, we have a problem that uh, in uh, natural sciences and especially in informatics and coding, we have no um, females. Like the girls are Mm -hmm. reluctant to it. And this is part of a systemic upbringing in primary education also. And one idea was to frame informatics also as a language, because in, in Germany, I don't know why it would be very interesting to look closer to it, but I know that in primary schools, like at one point, girls said, oh, math is nothing for me. I'm more into languages. So to frame informatics as a language, I like to make them understand it's it's very much something
2: that you can relate to because it's a language, you know, would be a tactic. But I remember in one of my uh, parent-teachers meetings in, in in India, and the teacher said, my maths teacher said to my mother, she's really bad in, in maths. And my mother said, well, I mean, girls are generally not good in maths, No. <laughs> And this was a female teacher and she looked at me and she was like, how shall I respond to this? I was like, I don't know.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: But yeah this culture of you know math being a very sort of a male dominated field.
3: It wasn't that way in Romania or in mm. I think in the eastern european countries mm. because it was very much everybody was trained into math so math was the the king of everything for us and i was very shocked in germany when i moved to germany and came and I, I i really very good friends of mine uh, when like, oh no math is so complicated for me mm. and so and i said like it's the most easy thing because you have to do nothing. Thing, you know you just have to understand mm. and to exercise a bit maybe but uh, yeah
2: mm. but do you also think it's it's also because of the underlying intentions associated with maths you know and computer science that you're supposed to use it to get a job it's not seen as a creative field now that I look at it so I was so terrified of maths as a child and now that I think of it there there's a book on maths that I recently got it's very interesting while you were sort of comparing with poetry mm-hmm. that it's not seen as, as a creative thing but mm-hmm. more sort of as a sort of as a route to get to something, to get a good job, to acquire Mm -hmm. technical skills, et cetera, et cetera, not rather just sort of enjoying and learning it for the sake of it, you know?
3: Yeah, I don't know. It's about the cultural framing, because for me as a kid, it was the it was the thing where your fantasy can go
2: uh, Mm. wild
3: was math. Mm. I don't know. It Mm. was different, differently put. Mm. I can't read. Yeah. Mm. Remember exactly mm. why, but it was something that if you if your brain works, then you are good in math. So no one would say, mm. "Oh, math is nothing for me." That that's like mm. saying, "I'm too stupid" or something. You know, that was for me the analogy. So um, it wasn't a choice. Mm. It wasn't even nothing to think about. I started to think about it in Germany, and then when my daughter came back, she was really good in school. And then she also, like, copied her friends and said, oh, Max, there's nothing for me. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, all of you here <laughs> in this room, and now we are talking, know, if I will hear this yeah. <laughs> again in my mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but but it's, um, I, I don't know why it's still, like... I don't know. It's the parenting, but also the schools and the system. I I don't Mm -hmm. know why, what it's here. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I will remember to look into it.
1: And there's many reasons. There were also studies that showed that really the labor markets where math and computer science lead you are not attractive for women at all. And they're really not attractive. So somehow the girls are right. They're not going into male-dominated areas. They know it will not be fun. And so, yeah, it is a very complex thing. Yeah. I agree. We yeah. have to change it, but it's not only about framing. It's also about working environments mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what children already know about them. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, where you and I come from, Rukhsana, from this this region of South Asia, maths is and computer science is a way to sort of like get better jobs and get out of your you know conditions, which is why it's actually connected to a very sort of aspiring uh, aspiring Absolutely. field.
0: Absolutely, and uh, to also I think for the same reason, a lot of women are also in that field more and more. Mm. Th- there are also a considerable amount of m- women working in tech fields in those countries because even parents or people uh, see that, you know, if they are here, they will have a, stable employment so oftentimes it is you know it is still a bit hard but you know the people are not as resistant to sending you to tech as they used to be Mm -hmm. because especially from places where everyone is studying that everyone around you are like okay you also study seems like everyone is getting decent money Mm -hmm. (laughs) why don't you also study it so Mm -hmm. i think that's sort of Uh, Sometimes the economic imperative often overrides, you know, sometimes, you know, you're like, maybe you might not be good at it, but you can still get some money out of it, (laughs) whatever. So, yeah, but it's still a long way to go. I think Uh, still people see math in particular. Anything brainy is what they used to call, you know, things involved with math, physics or whatever. These are supposed to be somehow more uh, emblems of your uh, intelligence or intellectual capabilities Mm -hmm. than other things like, you know, I don't know, arts or something else. So it's it's sort of a weird thing to tell uh, someone who who you sort of tell that people do not have capabilities, but but when it can be honed. Mm -hmm. like you know it's not something like you're born with like Mm -hmm. you're born with (laughs) You know, you've come out of the womb and you can recite Pythagoras theorem, that doesn't happen. (laughs) So it is something that you can truly hone and learn about. It's not innate. This sort of predilection towards thinking about things as being born with is something that is truly hindering a lot of sort of, I think, uh, growth of people because people think maybe I'm just born this way or born that way. So it was like it's not true (laughs) people can change brains can change so it's just like you know and an interesting thing, a lot of women I know who are in different fields are trying to move towards coding or computer mm-hmm. science because they see that it's more stable employment and they're learning. There are a lot of women doing that now. Like they're learning how to code and they're mm-hmm. starting at a later stage in their lives. So, and they're, you know, as good as anyone else who is doing that. So, I think it is. And that's also, I think, something interesting to notice that people who do not have access or who were not allowed to pursue these things for whatever reason at a much later stage in their careers when they're more, I don't know, on their own to make choices, they can choose coding because coding is not something that requires really a degree, so to say. Like you can truly just do a boot camp or whatever for one year and you can just get into it. It's not a high like a barrier to entry. But, I mean, ba- there's a barrier to start working in it. I don't think there's a huge barrier to just learn it. Just You can just go on the Internet and learn it for a bit. And a lot of people are doing it in precarious employment situations if they want a stable employment. They're like, you know, there's this very weird saying is just learn coding <laughs> well, Yeah, no
3: but that's true and also even if you're not looking for uh, let's say safe employment but for changing a bit mm-hmm. some you know technologies or applications so there is a lot of um, I don't know feminist hacker spaces right now which is a great movement I think where they invite people to make their phones more secure to learn coding for these special reasons to have more let's say more safety mm-hmm. in digital World or in for sure. the internet. You also mentioned some kinds of uh, being threatened in uh, in specific areas of the world. But then, how do you deal with this being exposed through the internet, for example?
0: Uh, for me, I think I have a very firm separation between work and my life. Like I only just try not to be too exposed in terms of my identities because I'm not out in out as a queer person in my country. So I don't want like being too exposed might also somehow take the news back uh, there. So I try to sort of very be very intentional about who I interact with and stuff like that. So and in regards to like digital privacy and safety, it's not something, unfortunately, I'm very familiar with. I know there's a lot of amazing work that's being done by a lot of people, especially on the surveillance capitalism and how it uh, it is now become a weapon of a lot of authoritarian governments across the world to, in order to surveil and get as much data as possible to manipulate. It is definitely a very important thing, and uh, unfortunately, that is not the realm or space I work with. So I do not probably have more insights than probably you folks. <laughs> I just uh, the sort of uh, exposure I have to is just from my own readings and stuff like that, not something I deal with at work or in my life so much.
1: And are you somehow related to some queer movement? I mean, the broader political movements that are in different places of the world?
0: Uh, uh, Yeah, I have been like I because I'm still new to Berlin, I'm trying to figure out the political ecosystem of queer spaces here and trying to get involved with uh, Spaces whose politics align with me, and where I feel comfortable to work with. For for sure, that's definitely something I want to do in the coming months to associate or to be somehow contribute to like local political movements uh, within you know, Berlin and or uh, like within the closest possible diameter of my <laughs> life. So yeah. But especially, I think, when you're an immigrant, you are involved with multiple issues. You're involved with where you're born, you're involved with where you moved, where you've lived. <laughs> so, it's oftentimes you have a lot of feet in a lot of things. Uh, it's also, I think, important to be also localized in your political visions and in your political efforts. So, that is something I'm hoping to work with and work towards in the mm-hmm. coming months.
3: Was it, Roxana, was it for you a choice to move to Berlin?
0: uh I wanted to leave a previous city which was terrible <laughs> uh it was a choice to move to Berlin because the city before did not have any public queer spaces as much like it was just like one queer bar full of usually cis white people gay men so it's not really a great place for me to seek community or you know be part of political movements and stuff so there was truly no place to bond in a public way and uh, i think berlin is in that sense a better city because it has a whole tradition of queer spaces and uh, there are many established Uh, queer spaces of bonding community and uh, of course there's a lot to improve about them but still they exist I think it's an important thing to have so that was the reason I chose Berlin.
2: yeah (laughs) yeah Here's hoping that you find your communities and hopefully our communities intersect and we meet and we do more things together. Absolutely. It was truly great to have you with us. We learned a lot. And just to also listen to you, it's just, yeah, you're so expressive and um, it was really nice to listen to you. Do you have any questions for us or you want to know something?
0: Uh, I think I'm just uh, happy that this is happening, that you're having conversation about tech spaces and I know that the tech spaces can be very you know like a bubble of their own where you cannot uh, like penetrate from outside like just even get an insight of what's happening it's just like okay some people are sitting before computers and doing some random shit so (laughs) you never really know so I'm glad that you are uh, making those efforts to you know get a view of something that is truly shaping in a lot of ways on modern lives and modern politics and uh, it's important to have a true idea of what's happening and i'm glad this is happening and i wish you all a very you know successful and more enriching podcast and enriching conversations in the coming months
2: Thank you so much. Great. Thank, thank you so you. much. You made it true. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and for listening uh, to us and for our audience who wants to connect with us, write to us, give us your suggestions or recommendations for guests. Please connect with us on Twitter, which is at Purple Coat Pod. Thank you so much. And yeah, have a nice day. Like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs>